Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit upon us, that in our studies, in our discipleship, uh, and following you in all things, that we might glorify your holy name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. And I said, Peter, and I meant to turn over to Becky tonight to please introduce our speaker. Becky, how are you doing over there in Nebraska? We are doing great, Father. We are doing great. Loving the church and loving being at ICC, even from Nebraska. Amen, sister. Amen. So we are excited tonight at the ICC to have with us for the first time, Dr. Matthew Minard. He is our speaker this evening and received his bachelor's degree in Catholic theology at St. Vincent College and both a licentiate and doctorate in philosophy from the Catholic University of America. Dr. Matthew Minard serves as a professor of philosophy at St. Cyril and Methodius Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is an adjunct instructor for Holy Apostles College and Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. Dr. Minard's academic work has appeared in the journals Nova et Vetera, the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly, St. Anselm Journal, Lex Naturalis, Downside Review, The Review of Metaphysics, and Meritan Studies, as well as in volumes published by the American Meritan Association through the Catholic University of America Press. He has served as an author, translator, and or editor for volumes published by the Catholic University of America Press, Emmaus Academic, Clooney Media, and Ascension Press. Dr. Minard lives with his family near Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Please welcome for the first time to the ICC, Dr. Matthew Minard. Thank you. Well, I'm going to go ahead and just jump right in, everyone. Uh, we'll eventually have a bit of back and forth conversation. You know, in some ways, it's so much easier when you can have a bit of that uh, just to break the ice. Because as I joke with people, it's we've all spent now all these years talking to the little green dot. Well, so the, the title for today's talk is Logos, um, the Quest for Human Wisdom uh, and the Son of God. So we're going to kind of consider how it is that our faith in the in the incarnation actually is somewhat reflected in the relationship uh, between faith and reason. So it's just taking kind of a different look on faith and reason, not looking at it kind of the, as they used to end of the 19th century philosophically, but instead trying to look at it from the perspective of the mysteries of faith. So in an essay entitled Faith and Theology, Pope Benedict recounts a motif that can be found sculpted on sarcophagi uh, from at least early on in the church in the third century. Uh, there's a, a threefold grouping of figures on the sarcophagi. One is a shepherd. Another is someone praying in the Oran's position. These are expected figures, right? And then the last one is a philosopher. The imagery of the shepherd and of the person praying make clear enough sense to Christian eyes, right? Uh, it's a kind of iconography that makes sense for those who would accompany the dead. One can't help but think of the, the words of the Psalms uh, so often used, sometimes overused. Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are at my side. But the philosopher is a little bit strange to be found on a sarcophagus. So it's true that if we read uh, you know, Old Testament texts such as Wisdom, we can see the way that Greek thought uh, was affecting uh, Jewish thought and also Revelation. And St. Paul's writings show evidence also of his knowledge of Greek and Roman thought. In Acts 17, we find him citing words from Greek poetry as he preaches at the Areopagus. Echoes of the idea of the natural moral law are heard in some of those famous passages in Romans 1 and 2. When he speaks of spirit, soul, and body, 
for instance, in First Thessalonians, you know, there are elements of the tripartition of the soul that existed in classical philosophy. And some have even uh, noted the fact uh, that his theology of Christ's primacy over the universe uh, at least partly de deploys Stoic notions uh, regarding both uh, spirit or noima that fills the universe, and also, too, that the notion of the, the fullness uh, of all things in Christ, pleroma, is also affected by philosophical bases. And in addition to St. Paul, who can help you know, or who, who can help oneself or prevent oneself from thinking of St. John's opening to the gospel, where Logos is said over and over again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Nonetheless, St. Paul also, of course, has his well-known and famous uh, reservations about philosophy. In Colossians, we read, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. This same sort of theme you can find in the Byzantine Church in the Akathist. There's in one of the one of the the sets of uh, chanted uh, tones uh, about Mary. There's this bit about the deceptions of the philosophers as well. So my wife always looks over her shoulder at me whenever uh, we pray that. But and then also too in First Corinthians, Saint Paul writes, "Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age?" Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this age? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the cross, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are both called Jew and Gentile alike. Christ, the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. And this same kind of reticence about philosophy is even stronger if we think of the, the famous passage about Athens and Jerusalem, uh, often cited just about that, that long, what has Athens to do, or what has Jerusalem to do with Athens, or Athens to do with Jerusalem, from Tertullian, who is well known for his uh, defection to the neo-prophetic movement, Montanism, but also who was very important for Western theology's foundations. He writes um, in his prescription against the heretics, I'll read the whole passage. The first line continues bombastically. So what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? In other words, what does Greek wisdom have to do with the, the message of salvation? What concord is there between the academy uh, of Plato and the church? What is there between heretics and Christians? Our instruction comes from the porch of Solomon, and he's sort of contrasting to the, the porch of the Stoics, who had himself taught that the Lord should be sought with simplicity of heart, away with all attempts to create a modeled Christianity made up of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We do not want any curious disputation after possessing Jesus Christ. No inquisition after enjoying the gospel. I'd put a parentheses in here. I mean, every Christian in a sense should sometimes feel this too, even if even if the church doesn't quite take the exact Tertullian approach. But there's, there's a great wisdom to this, at least reticence. With our faith, we desire no further belief, for this is our palmary faith, that there is uh, nothing which we ought to believe besides. Now, of course, there's a certain irony in this fact, though. Tertullian is like so many other Christians, even ones who invade against um, Greek thought, He's well apprised of uh, of Greek wisdom. And of course, the early church numbers many saints and saintly figures who would use Greek philosophy in the service of the gospel. We can think of Athenagoras or Justin Martyr or Irenaeus. And then how could we fail to think of the great Alexandrian theologians who left such a decisive mark on the Christian mind and on Christian theology through the ages, namely Clement, yes, Clement of Alexandria, but especially, even though he's problematic, Origen, who would echo through Christianity, uh, through Evagrius and others. And soon after that, we can think of uh, the great kind of foundation of flourishing of Christian philosophy and theology in East and West, in Augustine and his followers in the West, and in the Cappadocians, St. Gregory Nazianzus, Basil of Caesarea, and Gregory of Nyssa in the East, as well as, although... Uh, well, he is celebrated actually on, on the Byzantine calendar as a saint. I'm actually not sure in the Roman church. Um, the Syriac Neoplatonist, Pseudo-Dionysus, or Dionysus the Areopagite, as he is called, very important figure who used a lot of philosophy in the service of mystical or mystical theology, 
and John of Damascus or John Damascene, in whom we we see in the Byzantine context, this sort of first moment moving towards something like what the West develops very much in detail, a kind of summa uh, or full handbook of theology. So despite the example of Tertullian, and yet always remembering the warnings of St. Paul, uh, there still are also in the tradition of Christianity ample examples and texts from which we can draw to attest to the fact that Christianity has numbered the, the philosopher, the philosopher is a general figure, among the images she uses for understanding her nature. But let's go back to the, the sarcophagus now. So the, the philosophy, that the idea of philosophy that so animates the, the church's use of human wisdom is, is unique. It's a love of wisdom that brings the true answer to death. That's what Christianity is, and that's the spirit in which she uses philosophy in a sense. Ratzker makes an excellent observation about this sarcophagus. The philosopher who is on there is the cynic, the itinerant philosopher. Now, we hear the word cynic, and we imagine sort of every uh, slovenly philosopher who sits around basically picking at everything and telling you why you should be a skeptic, but that's not what the term means. The term really comes from the same roots as canine uh, in, in English, and the, the cynics were like people who nipped at the bad opinions of others. So just like Socrates was the gadfly of Athens sent to bite at the important men who flew up on the heights on their Pegasus so that they might fall back down to earth. The cynics were sort of like that too. In the tales uh, that are told about the cynics in the lives of the eminent philosophers, which was penned by one of uh, cynicism's most important practitioners, Diogenes Laertius, we can read uh, amusing tales about the philosoph philosophers of, of the Hellenistic era of philosophy in general, but especially the cynics. You're presented with a sort of antisocial lot of people. Uh, they really are. They are critical, um, but I, I wouldn't call them cynical in the modern sense. But despite their oddities, uh, they they were very important for setting the broad boundaries, basically, of what we know know of as natural law. Um, such philosophers, the Cynics, and then the Stoics, who followed followed upon them and were very influenced by them, were very practically minded in their philosophy. In many ways, they embodied Socrates' own practices, questioning others, especially about virtue, to try and you know to try and find the way forward uh, using the tool that is philosophy for living a moral life, and hence the most human way of life. Philosophy is very much a practice for the Cynics and the Stoics. That's very much the sense you get while reading their texts. So it makes sense. The Christian uses the cynic preacher as a kind of natural image for what the Christian message brings to mankind. Ratzinger observes in this, this essay, uh, Christian existence means life in conformity to the Logos, and that is why Christians are the true philosophers and why Christianity is the true philosophy. But we didn't come here today to talk about the history of Christian iconography, and I couldn't do that anyway. I'm not a historian, and nor, nor am I a classicist. And I'm not an expert in Hellenistic philosophy. A lot of the stuff over my my shoulder is both uh, philosophy and theology from later scholastic authors, uh, Baroque scholasticism uh, in the West, actually. I'm a weird Byzantine, uh, but no good Byzantine seminarian, nonetheless, could study Greek thought or uh, Greek theology without having some idea about Hellenistic philosophy. And so I've had to teach my students to grapple with Stoicism and Cynicism and Plato and Aristotle and, of course, the great Neoplatonists. Still, our talk's not about that historically. We're devoted to the topic about the quest for wisdom and the Son of God. So to this end, I want to take it for granted that we can we can accept the fact that the church in her wisdom for many long centuries, has presumed and has indeed proclaimed an answer concerning the relationship between Athens and Jerusalem, settling on behalf of not merely a truce, but a kind of blessed partnership, at least in the better moments when philosophy doesn't try to take the upper hand. Although this partnership has taken on many forms through the course of history and in various uh, suiris churches, even to this day, Byzantine, Byzantine approaches will be different than Latin and so forth. Our beloved mother and teacher throughout the ages, uh, throughout the all, all the ages that have been or will be, holds that it remains true to say that the saving truths of faith presupposed a human reason that was open to the supernatural message. And we can find an echo of this sentiment 
in uh, the famous lecture that Pope Benedict gave early, relatively early in his papacy at Regensburg, where he he makes a remark in passing, uh, but he observes it's it's based on whenever Paul has the vision to go to Macedonia that Ratzinger on the occasion of that text comments that there was a kind of intrinsic necessity that there be a rapprochement between biblical faith and Greek inquiry, he says. In God's providence, in other words, Greco-Roman philosophy provided a fit instrument at the right time for the early church, who at once purified and elified, ele- I'm sorry, purified and elevated natural reason into her supernatural service. Now, this is going to move us toward our our actual theme theologically. Tonight, we're gathering, uh, for those of us who are Byzantine, actually already in the midst of our season of preparation uh, for the nativity, and more importantly, really, for the theophany. Um, We we celebrate that as the baptism of the Lord when you uh, celebrate the epiphany. Um, But in the West, you'll be celebrating Advent relatively soon as well. I think this coming weekend is your first, first Sunday of Advent. The mystery of what we could call the temporal gestation of the word, or as Father Sayward uh, in a lovely little book says, the redeemer in the womb, should be on our minds today. Uh, And so I want to use some Christological meditation to then guide our thoughts about faith and reason, Uh, even though this talk will be online throughout the the year. um, I think it's nice to at least address where we are now. So Christianity from its uh, earliest days uh, when we think about how it relates to human wisdom, and we see this in St. Paul, we see this in St. John, uh, has been plagued by the temptation to some kind of Gnosticism. Some view that a kind of secret knowledge, very often coupled with the idea that matter um, is is evil, uh, that being uh, creatureliness is evil, but especially this idea of a kind of secret knowledge that's separate for the, the elect has always sort of been present in Christianity. The early apologists will even present uh, Christianity as the true Gnosticism as a way to try and fight against Gnosticism. Now, Christianity is a truth. It is the true wisdom. It is, in a sense, the true the true knowledge because it's the knowledge of it's the knowledge of Christ and his salvation. And hence, too, ultimately knowledge of the triune God uh, that, that we already have a foretaste of, the vision of, uh, at least to some some way as wayfarers now, and that we'll have in full perfection in the hereafter. It is a logos. It is that which is from the beginning, the word of God. But it was never, as with the temptation for the Gnostics, a kind of disincarnate logos, a kind of secret message communicated through a spiritualism that would require us to destroy and be fully separated from the bodily. Christian spirituality, Christian revelation always brings uh, in its wake or as part of its very essence, a spirituality, a theology of theophany and of transfiguration. Yes, of course, this requires a purification of the bodily. It requires a mysticism that makes us put aside uh, all earthly things to purify our faith. It requires a destruction of the old Adam and a new clothing in Christ. But ultimately, Christian salvation is neither a disembodied return to the primordial one who is our source, nor is it a kind of loss of ourselves in nirvana. Salvation in Christianity is salvation in Christ, in Christ the incarnate word, in his mystical body as his members. There is no salvation outside the church precisely because there is no salvation outside the word who has become flesh. And so, if we go back to that text from uh, the first letter of John that I had just quoted, I just took an ellipsed form. I just said sort of uh, that it's that which is from the beginning, the word of life is what we knew. But what does John say, of course, in that famous and beautiful opening to that letter? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we could add with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The great mystics of Christianity have seen in in the transfiguration, for example, the the luminosity of the physicality of Christ, a kind of profound truth about the very reality of Christianity and the Christian life. They've seen there in the mystery of the transfiguration in the life of Christ, a kind of vital continuity that links together Christ's divinity shining forth through his humanity, both distinct and yet also with his humanity penetrated and radiant with his divinity, flowing forth from that that grace, which is it's a kind of grace uh, in strict theological language, the grace of union by which Christ's human nature is drawn to the person of the word, there is then also the radiance of that divine life 
through the whole of his humanity. And this is really just the same kind of logic that we find all throughout the great story of creation and redemption in Scripture. God saves the world precisely by drawing, really, he saves us through one man, and he draws together one small people from one sm small stock of, you know, of chosen line coming coming out of Noah and Shem to be his own, to be the place where he becomes incarnate, the place and people where an individualized human nature refashions Adam who was fallen. So Christianity is a shocking religion in some ways, especially to a rationalist, and also I would say in many ways to a philosopher. Every kind of rationalism wants to make, make us act in a way that basically would be rational for everyone. Kant's idea of morality is just one example of this. Act according to nature, act according to rationality. We don't deny that as Christians, but I think we should, in a sense, set aside some of the baggage of us all being modern and think about what the Christian message uh, tells us about the importance of particularity. In a single community and in a single place of a single woman, a single person, a single nature becomes united to the 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 word in God. St I'm skipping just a, something I think is a little bit uh, got a little bit too wordy, and I want to I want to try and rhetorically catch this. This particularity should be shocking when we think of Christianity. It should always it should always fill us with an awe at the mystery of God, the way that God uses the particular to then effect to bring about universal salvation. God begins the rescue operation that's required after the fall by selecting this small group, establishing his name through the line of the line of Shem, down through the patriarchs amid this particular people, and then when the appointed time comes, sends his only begotten son. And then not only this only begotten son, but born of a particular woman, born of a particular people, living under a particular law that had a long history, so that we might be grafted onto that particular vine, which is the source of all life. Christian universalism, this is the logic of incarnation. The Christ, Christian universalism is incarnate always in a kind of Christian and Christ-centered particularism. The supernatural life of the Trinity that we are given through grace, that life that we have right now, which is eternity, which has really begun in all of us who have sanctifying grace in our souls, a kind of at least beginning uh, wayfaring state of eternity communicated to us is communicated to us through the sacred humanity of Christ. We can find this kind of, we could call it sacramentality or transfiguration throughout all of Christianity, but I want to now turn to how this is, I think, reflected in the question of faith and reason. We want to see how the logic of the incarnation, in a sense, is reflected there. So although God makes use of new prophetic images and new prophetic revelations in order to communicate the truth of his saving gift to humanity. The message of uh, the message of the creed, the message of the early councils, the message of revelation in Old and New Testament presupposes human language. It presupposes human knowledge. Think about even our Lord's practice. What does he do? He communicates the message of salvation by way of parables, by way of common speech, by way of table talk, by shared uh, communion by the particular act of the cross and in and the rising in a particular tomb on the third day. His message comes from on high. It is a supernatural message. We can never we can never underestimate the amount of distance that separates every created nature from the truths that are revealed by supernatural faith. It is a secret, a hidden wisdom, as St. Paul says, which God decreed before all ages for our glorification. It is what no eye has seen, no no angel by, by its uh, natural powers. You could stack new angels up as high as the heavens, and by their natures they could never know this. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man conceived, known only to the Son. And yet this message, which was hidden from the wise was revealed to those who humble their minds to the obedience of faith. And, you know, we tend to, we pray the creed uh, at every divine liturgy and at, at least at masses on Sundays and on solemnities um, in the West, and, you know, it can become kind of ho-hum. We get so used to just running through the creed. Um, 
And then sometimes we can think, oh, it's got words like consubstantial in it. It's so abstract. But let's think of how down to earth those words in the creed are that we pray uh, every Sunday, at least. We use words like believe, father, light, heaven. We could keep going through them, son. But we also do know that in addition to these, these words, there are the words that stick out to us, some of which were controversial. So very famously, at the first Nicene Council, of course, there was the controversy over a word that was down to earth in some ways for Greek speakers, but came from philosophers, not from sacred scripture. The well-known word homo usios, or of the same substance, what in the Latin uh, translation, for most of you who are Western, comes across as consubstantial. It comes from just two very down-to-earth Greek terms, though, homo, which is like what we, we use as a prefix and homogenous, and ousia, uh, which although the philosophers talked about it as substance, it, it could mean something just like when we say that someone is a man of substance. He's a man of ousia. He's wealthy. He's got a lot of stuff. Um, but when the fathers of the council drew together, as well as the broader Christian world as well, uh, they were aware that this word also had a philosophical meaning. It had been charged with uh, philosophical reflection, the history of philosophical reflection. And so Uzziah meant something like that which remains one and the same amid the changes that that a given being undergoes. So my Uzziah is to be human amid all the changes of aging and going from virtue to, I hope, you know, never device, um, uh, becoming thinner or fatter becoming grayer, uh, gaining knowledge and skills, there's still one Uzia that remains the same. Philosophically speaking, what is most real about a being is its Uzia, its essence. Now, of course, different philosophers had different uh, explanations, very different ones. For Plato, the most Uzia of things was actually the forms of things, these transcendent ideas that all of creation was a sort of copy of. That's where the most Uzia, like the most Uzia-ness was in the forms. As is known, Aristotle sort of brought that down to earth, and the usia is substance. But it can just mean, in common sense language, being, essence, substance. He's a man of usia. He's a man of substance. Although, as we'll see, it, it means it in a little bit of an abstract sense. Um, and so there will be another word, hypostasis, that will be developed or used as the councils move along. So here, though, we're still praying this one word, which was very common in Greek uh, at the time to this day. We say in the Ruthenian church, one in essence, growing up as a Roman Catholic, uh, people said one in being in the translation I grew up with. Current translation is closer to that Latin form, like I said, saying consubstantial. What happened was this common sense notion, which was also, however, articulated by philosophers, came to be consecrated for a use that no philosopher could ever imagine. A very particular natural term was lifted up in the service of the triune God so that we could say this man Christ was in fact consubstantial of one Uzziah with the Father. Natural wisdom gave way or became the instrument, we could say, of a, to a supernatural message. Or to use a different metaphor, the supernatural mystery of the Trinity allowed some small but very real, very essential, very necessary radiance to pass through humble the humble rags of human knowledge. Such would be the case of blessed rags, though. Blessed rags, we can't throw them away. Um, but it, such humble, humble clothing that was used uh, to express uh, this mystery. Such would be the case for many other terms used through the history of the early church. Immediately in the wake of Nicene Orthodoxy, there was a continued need to define uh, a term that could be used not only now for the case of Christ, but what do we do for the persons in the Trinity? And so that's the term hypostasis. Philosophically, that term just is a little bit more specific to say, I, Matthew Minard, have a particular ousia, a particular substance that stands under all of those different changes that occur. Underneath those changes of gaining skills, Gain, uh, gaining memories, losing memories, uh, becoming grayer, and so forth. Underneath all of that, hypostanding, if you will, is my person, as the West would say, uh, or my hypostasis. So in the Latin West, the term per persona comes to be used instead of hypostasis. So in Divinis, in the tr Trinity, 
there are three persons who are one in one in substance, but three in hypostasis, three hypostases. And just to take one more example, another very down-to-earth uh, common sense notion that was, however, philosophically reflected on in Greek philosophy would become to be declared or used in the declarations of Chalcedonian orthodoxy, Phusis or nature. Any of you who've read Aristotle know that Phusis is kind of like looking at Uzia, but saying or, or focusing on the fact that that essence is a source of motion. Things that have natures have actions and also, uh, we could say, states of rest that are natural to them. So Fusis is a principle of motion and rest. So drawing this term Fusis, not necessarily from just Aristotle, it's sort of in the mix of use by Stoicism and Neoplatonism and, and Aristotelianism, the Council of Chalcedon uh, in particular settled on another use for a rather down-to-earth term of, of Greek uh, usage that the philosophers had, which continues to be radiant to this very day. That Christ is one in hypostasis, and that hypostasis is the, the word, eternal, but dual in physis, dual in nature. When the church uses such philosophical notions then, usia, hypostasis, uh, physis, she doesn't consecrate them specifically as philosophical. She doesn't require her faithful to, to kind of take them with every single connection that is made to Stoicism or Aristotelianism or Platonism, or dare I say, uh, Thomism, whenever they understand Uzia, Hypostasis, and Fusus. Philosophy serves common sense. It gives precision to these, these notions. It takes its roots in that common sense notion of Uzia, of Hypostasis, of Fusus, of essence or being, of person that stands under, of nature. And it always serves in some way, at least, that original foundation. Now, there's some technicality, yeah, that's involved with this. It's not the normal thing for us to talk about today, to just, you know, walk up to a bar and say to someone, what do you think about, you know, uh, Fusus? Um, but there's a kind of continuity in these most basic notions that the church uses, that philosophy is serving common sense and lifting them out of their philosophical context, and then by her divinely assisted authority using them in a way that that then articulates an irreformable truth about, uh, in this case, the most central of mysteries, namely the Trinity and the redemptive incarnation. And there are lots of such common notions that have been used in the history of the church. Mi just to list some, mystery, truth, dogma, doctrine, belief, faith, hope, love, uh, we could say society as a notion applied to the church. This is, of course, especially used in post the post-Tridentine West. Um, relation for the persons in the Trinity as well, uh, very much a scholastic thing to use, but has been used, was used in Florence um, as well. Sign, which you can't understand the sacraments unless you understand, unless you use the word sign, the notion of sign. The sacraments are by their, their nature signs, even though they're efficacious signs. The church is used to speak of God, unity, holiness, goodness, unchangeableness or immutability, infinity, justice, mercy, providence, power, all applied to God. We could keep going on and on and on. But all of these notions, we can talk just without appealing to the gospel, without appealing to the Christian message about even faith, hope, and love. It's one of the things I hate as someone who teaches moral theology is that when people talk about faith, hope, and love, they use it in a natural sense whenever it's really a supernatural mystery. So what we have to remember is the fact that these natural notions, these very particular terms used with the history are lifted up and used in the service of the divine, divine message, just as that human nature of Christ is, so to speak, lifted up and uh, finds its subsistence in the subsistence of the, the word. So a wonderful quote about this that I, I have here, and I'll, I'll hopefully appropriately read it, from the uh, Dominican uh, theologian Ambrose Gardag, very uh, wonderful uh, teacher of mystical theology, also theological methodology, um, and also ascetical theology. But he writes in one of his books on theological methodology, the church is a society, the sacrament Sacraments are signs. Sanctifying grace is a reality that exists in man. What he's saying there is it's a quality. He's thinking in terms of the, 
the discussions uh, very often taken up in the West about created grace. Charity is a virtue. We speak of virtues and talk about charity. All of this is true, but it's only true if we don't take those words in their usual and ordinary meaning, as might happen on first consideration. To take just one to take one example, it is necessary to say that signs are found all throughout of our natural lives. But have you ever seen in your natural life signs that by their own power bring about what they signify, like the sacraments do? And what is it that these sacraments bring about? They bring about a divine effect, a participation in the divine life. Has, has any sign that you've ever experienced in your life done that? What a sacrament is, what a sign is, when we speak of it over here in the Christian domain, it's transfigured. And its innermost nature is inaccessible to our minds without the light of faith. And then this, this quote was actually used in just a, a wonderful text by Cardinal Charles Journet, who taught for, for many decades at the uh, University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Uh, and he was a paritus uh, near the end of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it is altogether necessary, he says, to be very careful here about these two meanings, to insist on the, the mystery of the double use of the same concepts by, by reason and by faith. When we say that God is one, that he is good, that he is wise, as well as even when we affirm that God exists and when he rewards those who seek him, these two propos these propositions can cover over two different sorts of profundities. On the one hand, they can take up a philosophical mystery, mystery of God's perfect unity that, you know, that philosophy can prove, his absolute goodness, his fullness of being, his providence, which even in a sense, very uh, sketchily, but very truly can be proven by philosophy, can be glimpsed in the mirror of creatures by philosophy. But in this case, when we use the terms this way, Journet says, God is only known by the fringe of his garments. But on the other hand, these natural terms, which are utterly necessary, mind you, can be used then to signify a revealed mystery. They're doing something that's quite akin, on my aside, they're doing something that's quite akin to what those natural acts of our Lord were like. Whenever his, his disciples or any of the, the people in Jerusalem were there, we can't begin to imagine the flashes of divinity that flashed through that which was you know, natural acting through his human nature. And of course, think about the act of the cross, which is the most, um, the most perfect example here, that in that act and the whole, the whole Paschal mystery and the resurrection, that you, you have a, a death that's infinitely meritorious performed by the word. Because all acts are performed by the person who performs them, not merely just by the nature, they're through the nature. So just as the divinity flashed through that death with a kind of blinding light, really, um, something too, at least, can be said, all proportions maintained for what, what I'm about to say. The words that we use, these natural words, unity, existence of God, providence, can signify a revealed mystery, the mystery of faith, incomparably more profound. The mystery of the unity, goodness, being, and providence of a God who is Trinity. We could add, in the case of providence, the God who is revealed to us is seeking out that one sheep and while the other 99 are, are waiting for him. Of him who became flesh to save the world, Journey continues. And in this case, God is known as he is in himself, in his personal life, although here below, using these notions, we do so in the darkness of faith. These truths show us the uttermost profundities of God. They reveal to us God as he is in himself, the God that is inaccessible to reason and whom we shall see in heaven, the God who, however, uh, we attain here below, although in the darkness of faith. So when such common notions, such natural notions, such notions of reason are used in the service of the divine message, when philosophy serves to illuminate natural human experience, to be clarified, to be illuminated in the service of supernatural truth, we have a kind of transfiguration. The uncreated Trinity comes to visit us in the garments of uh, of created reality. The uncreated Trinity comes to visit us in the garments of created reality. Philosophy has many other services, yes, that can be brought to the message of faith, and it has offered it over the over the years, over the centuries. 
I'm sure that you know all all know the famous line, philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. Uh, the expression was actually uh, coined by Peter Damien, St. Peter Damien, uh, as a kind of insult to keep philosophy in its place. It's just the handmaiden. But whatever might be said about this blessed uh, servitude, philosophy has played its role for 2,000 years as an instrument not only in the process of dogmatic development, but also in the labor of theologians who strive to give some small understanding of the faith, some intellectus fidei. We could, of course, think also very specifically of the way that if you read ascetical uh, literature, uh, literature, but ascetical works by great masters, how they use the natural law just to use examples, other ways that, yes, philosophy has been used. The idea from the Stoics of following right reason and acting according to nature can be found all throughout the Philokalia, the the texts of of Greek uh, monastic wisdom that the Byzantine uh, church holds and cherishes so dearly. Augustine can't be thought of if we don't think about how he was so imbued with the spirit of uh, Roman thought and Greek thought of his time through Roman means, uh, both Stoic and Neoplatonic, as he discusses evil, predestination, our knowledge of God, God's knowledge of the world, the, uh, the way that God acts in creation, and so forth. Christian mysticism could never be thought of without that great synthesis of Neoplatonism that we find in Pseudo-Dionysius and others. And of course, quite obviously too, uh, it would be wrong for a Thomist, even a Byzantine Thomist, to to look over the jewel of Aristotelianism and uh, Neoplatonic thought, who set the firm foundation for scientific theology that still also remains faithful to the, utterly faithful to the mysteries of faith. Of course, I'm speaking of Thomas Aquinas. There are many other examples I could draw, and I'm going to skip my next paragraph for the sake of, I think, flow. We could do just, we go through all kinds of things about what the human person is, what the spiritual soul is, creation from nothing. Um, What about the theology of conversion, and how are we supposed to explain conversion that at once is uh, springs forth from our nature, but is ultimately and totally a gift of grace. All of those things require a great deal of philosophical instruments used in the service of faith. And moreover, how could we have a theology concerning the divine names and the way that we can talk about God, the way that we can stretch our language, the very way that we were just talking about, so that we can stammer out some small amount uh, about God? Philosophy has much to provide in all of these domains. The natural order, though, and this is what's most important, is not neatly sealed up as though it could not receive something from the supernatural order. Nature, and hence natural wisdom, finds its finest moment, its most noble service, by being transfigured by the divinely dazzling light of faith and the triune fire of hope and charity. And let us not be like ungrateful children, who have nothing to recognize from the patrimony we've received. The great truths of Christianity, the church's continued dogmatic and doctrinal declarations and clarifications, and even the great syntheses of theological wisdom, especially among those whom the church recognizes as a doctor or teacher of her faithful. All of these are a gift that we have received and must appreciate. And for this reason, too, on the same logic, it's no embarrassment that Christianity is profoundly marked by her Greco-Roman origins, and nor is it imperialism to wish to communicate her deposit, as well as also, too, this philosophical, uh, we won't call it a deposit, but this, this philosophical handmaid that has always been at her side, to men and women today, starved as they are for the food of truth. In this regard, we have one more example of that great law of incarnation by which the natural is transfigured so as to radiate something supernatural. The philosopher Jacques Maritain once made a remark in his Introduction to Philosophy text, It's not for nothing that divine truth was revealed and first taught in Hebrew and Greek concepts. Without a doubt, they were adapted to this task and prepared for by the Word who illuminates every man coming into this world. That is, in other words, God was even preparing the Greek mind to play this role. Without a doubt, they were, above all, flexed and rectified. They were fixed, so to speak, by by this divine truth, which had to be expressed in them. Plato and Aristotle are our masters, but how transformed are they by the faith 
which found in them the concepts needed for its own human expression. This is actually from, I apologize, Michel Labourdette. The Maritan thing is at the end. At this point, probably all of us who are alive today have lived through a long period of ecclesiastical confusion. And I'm not entering into the, the sort of, you know, au courant arguments about the Second Vatican Council, not at all. As an Eastern Catholic, we live in a world where that's not even an issue for us because we gained so much from the Second Vatican Council that that's not even on my mind. No, I'm referring instead to the fact that any of us who've been alive from the 60s onward and have lived through the cultural upheavals and the ecclesiastical upheavals, um, we have to feel on some some level, and I think Father hinted, hinted at this, <laughs> or basically was making the point at the beginning here today, that many in the church have seemed embarrassed of the great deposit that the tradition of that our church has laid up for us. And especially, it would seem that to the eyes of the fancy and intelligent men and women of this age, that above all, this very particular, singular, historically contingent, Greco-Roman, although I have in parentheses, let's not forget the Syriacs as well, uh, didn't talk much about them, but Greco-Roman and Syriac aspect of our patrimony should perhaps be crucified on the altar of multicultural pluralism. Now, of course, much can be learned in dialogue, but ultimately, whatever alterations might take place for the language of theology or dogma, nothing can ever be promulgated by the church that stands outside of continuity with the very particular history in which the vitality of revealed truth has lived for 2,000 years. In other words, and more simply stated, one cannot be Christian without feeling a kind of filial piety the kind of feeling of sons and daughters toward parents, toward this blessed encumbrance, it's no encumbrance, the dogmatic, ascetical, mystical, moral, liturgical, and intellectual ballast that gives us stability that we have been heirs to. First and foremost, heirs of that Jerusalem that is above, but also, too, of the Greco-Roman world that providence chose as the place where the seed of faith might grow with many branches populated with all the birds of the air. Now, here's that quote from Maritam. In Greece alone, in the ancient world, the wisdom of man found the right path. And as a result of a fortunate harmony of the soul's powers and a long effort to achieve mental order and discipline, human reason attained its full vigor and maturity. Thus, amid the great empires of the East, marked as they were by no small amount of wisdom, the small Hellenic race appears like a man amid gigantic children and may be truly termed the instrument of reason and word of man as the Jewish people was the instrument of revelation and word of God. It was in Greece alone that philosophy achieved her autonomy and was explicitly distinguished from religion. At least during the purest and most glorious age of the Hellenic mind, it recognized its own boundaries and was content to claim a strictly limited territory, the scientific study of purely rational truths. Whereas in Greek religion, already much degraded by the time of Homer, uh, it had become Greek religion, that is, increasingly incapable of satisfying the intellect's needs and became more corrupt every day. True, the time would come when the Greeks, arrogantly abusing philosophy and reason, would attempt to embrace the things of God by reason alone would become, in the words of St. Paul, vain in their thoughts and deserve his condemnation concerning the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness in the sight of God. But their philosophy, though born of their mind, is undefiled by their corruptions, and its sole object is truth. Therefore, the incarnate word, or thus, the incarnate word, spoke the saving word which fulfilled all things, summed up all things, and contained in seed a doctrinal vitality that the word of man, the logos of the philosophers, would serve and will serve until the end of time. Such service to the supernatural logos is not the sole task of philosophy. Philosophy has its own nature and it has its own temporal tasks. But this service is its most noble labor and we should always cherish the great living thoughts that Christian philosophy has given birth to through the ages, humbly subordinate to the word who is eternally begotten of the Father, who brought to earth his eternal hypostatic presence by being born in time 
in the womb of the mother of God and who brings to us participated eternity when we are born anew through the grace by which the triune God bestows filiation in Christ, the new Adam. So thank you very much. Uh, we'll do question and answer. Doctor, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the tour de force that you just presented us with. <laughs> and uh, a beautiful, beautiful presentation tonight. Really appreciate your preparation. And we got a whole bunch of questions, but but I'm going to go ahead, doctor, and and use my my uh, supreme authority here at the ICC to present a question. And that is, you know, as you were talking, as you were speaking tonight, I said, I said, you know what the fundamental problem here is? We don't speak Christian anymore. You know, and, and I, I, I said for myself too. I mean, you're you're using terms, and I'm and I'm and and. And I don't have a bad, I, I have a decent formation, you know, but I'm trying to grapple and I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to like process these, these words and this language that you're using, but you're using it as though it's a language that is like your spoken language. And I, and I, and I'd like you to just speak on, for the sake of everyone here gathered tonight to talk about the importance of learning uh, our Christian language, as far as a patrimony is to become familiar in such a way that we speak again as the fathers of the church spoke um, to be able to receive what you're teaching in such a way that it was, it's common language for us and how we, we should be striving or not be striving. I, I just kind of open it up. It kind of, it's an open question. Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. And I mean, I, I feel like I should have taken now, I should have taken the advice of my dear boss for the Christian campus seriously, but in my defense, he sent me an email today with his comments on the paper. So it took him a week to get back to me. <laughs> but one of the things he said, he's like, just be careful. He says, you know, there's a sense in which you think you're you're writing it here, right? You know, he said, but you really need to be very careful with use of terminology. I'm used to like horribly technical stuff. The scholastics kind of have, it's like scholastic babble, you know? But there's all, so all sorts of stuff just in, you know, it's, think about scriptural languages like this too, though. I mean, you know, we could just do images, images of just regarding, um, I don't know, like themes about rebirthing Christ um, or pleroma and fullness or, um, uh, now I'm going to be at a loss. I'm trying to think of things that, you know, they're pretty much straightforward. I mean, straightforward sorts of things that you just think of just normal Christology about being incorporated into Christ. Um, when we say the expression mystical body of Christ, I mean, we should actually have like immediate residences that go through basically everything in the nature of Christ and our life of grace, etc. Um, you know, there are just things that a Christian imagination should have as part of its its mindset, right? Scripturally, let alone then just the history of the councils, right? There's a there's a language that it's not just something we have to like pray at, at liturgy in the creed. You know, these are just sort of like basic structural things so that we don't like bumble around and mess up about the most basic truths of the faith, right? Um, I had a, a professor at St. Vincent. I was I was a, a Benedictine monk actually for a couple of years. So I was a seminarian and I had a church history professor. He he said, if the Inquisition comes for you, just remember, just keep repeating one person, two natures, one person, two natures. Because he was so frustrated at his students who were seminary students getting something or other wrong about just basic Chalcedonian Christology. Um none of us are become experts, right? Like we're not gonna know the history of like Uzia in Stoicism, right? And you don't need to. Um but you you should you should just know you should have some familiarity with the way that you know authors in the tradition speak and the way you do this actually is and I was not paid people I was not paid to help fundraise uh, the way you do this is by engaging with the texts right so it's great if you start doing primary texts of the fathers you, it just seeps into you by by seeing it used because you should think with a mind that's yes the mind of Christ that's the most important. But you should also just think with the, the the culture that has been cultivated by Christian wisdom over the ages, not because we want to be smart, but because these have become like tools to help us try and like babble in a way that's not heretical, right? To, to speak of the, the mystery, but in a way that we don't by foolish words fall into heresy. Um, yeah, it's, it's very important. You know, the, it's dangerous because words sometimes then go and do our thinking for us, right? We start using words and we don't prayerfully use them. Or even in philosophy, we don't think when we use them. So there's a danger, yeah. But we're creatures, and so we have to have this. And it's part of having a, a an informed um, imagination and lexicon. It's just just as important as like having a, a scriptural 
kind of imagination, right? Like so that whenever you're reading scripture, you just sort of see immediately. You feel like a monk in the like the, the Western monks when they just sort of float from one image to another because their minds are just imbued with it. So there's something also here. It's part of the patrimony. It's part of the patrimony of how Christianity has articulated the dogmas. Yeah. Like think about merit. You think about discussions like merit, justification, all of that, right? I mean, you have to know what those words mean because we live in a world where Protestantism has responded to that. If you don't have some exposure, just a little, just a little, you're just floating around, you know? Yeah, I I um I uh, just encourage everyone like if you found yourself at all during during Doctor Miner's talk going you know like I think oh and you're like that that's actually a good thing I mean it's not good not good I I, you know we want to be but I want you struggling you know and it's and like he just said exposure is the name of the game go ahead Doctor it's sort of but uh, I mean I wasn't trying to be just the arrogant professor who walked in I mean there's a version of this where I could have done the Thomas Roadshow that would have been really just it would have been over the top and arrogant (laughs) I wanted the I wanted to have a bit of stretching not like I, I wanted to try and keep it in a language that wasn't but you know, too high, but to stretch. Yeah. Doctor, I'm glad you dumbed it down for us. Really. I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's uh... (laughs) (laughs) your words, not mine. Uh, (laughs) Becky, you want to jump in? Absolutely. Dr. Minard, we have Steve writing in with, I think is what a really a great question for us. What are some takeaways? What are some of the core highlights and insights you would want every ordinary Catholic to know about the incarnation and be pondering as we move through Advent toward the nativity of our Lord and the theophany? Yeah. Um, I would like you, I, I think it's a marvelous meditation to do for the entire year of the liturgical year to think about how each and every one of the the particular what we could say like generalized mysteries of the life of Christ radiate with the the uncreated life that is the the life of the word each one of Christ's incarnate each of his acts but each of his states of life is a unique source of grace um a, a way that that Christ through the liturgy acts in our life to configure us to himself and to give us triune life um, and I'm just, this is on my mind, a great book uh, that that actually meditates on this kind of throughout each of the, the liturgical feasts is uh, the Benedict and Columba Marmions, the mysteries of the mysteries of life, mysteries of Christ, Christ in his mysteries. There we go. Christ in his mysteries. Uh, they're just, they're from retreats he gave very super scriptural. Um, I mean, that's what I would, I would reflect on. That's at least sort of, that's like what's on my heart now. And I'm doing a lot of thinking about Marmion. So that's probably why, because I'm, I'm getting ready for a podcast that I'm going to do. Um, but to, to appreciate the fact that each of those down to earth aspects of Christ's life radiate with the uncreated light. And so how, how can we enter into that prayerfully by reading the gospels, by partaking in like the liturgy, not just, you know, not just mass, but like the whole of the liturgy of the hours. Um, Yeah. That would be my thought. Great. Great. And Dr. Uh, Donna is uh, wrote in uh, an interesting question that like piqued my interest. Actually, also, um, she she says you, that you mentioned Gnosticism uh, during your talk. And um, and then she said that uh, just this morning um, that she was reading First Corinthians. Uh, so if you've got your Bible out there, guys, open your Bible. Here we go. We're gonna go. We're gonna go to the passage that Donna mentions. I'm gonna read it here, and then, uh, Doctor, if you could kind of comment on what Saint Paul's idea is here, because it sounds kind of Gnostic. Uh, she's in First Corinthians chapter two. First um, Corinthians chapter two, verse seven, verse seven, um, in which Saint Paul says, "We impart, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God." which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have been have crucified the Lord of glory. And she just says, what's he talking about? It sounds like Gnosticism to yeah. me. You know? Well, it's a great, so that's an example of like, you take a text like that, you could twist it into Gnosticism. Hey, we've got the secret message from God, right? Um, but what St. Paul's getting at is in in Christ, in the person of Christ, Christ both in his church, but then, of course, Christ incarnate uh, on earth, Christ active then in his mystical body, God expresses the whole of the, the triune life, right? He, he expresses the son who himself points back 
and takes all of creation to the Father. Um, and, and they do this by divinization of the Spirit. The message of Christianity, first in the person of Christ, who is truth incarnate, and then in the truths of faith, are a hidden wisdom in the sense they're hidden from anything that any any philosopher, any other religion could ever have uh, communicated. It's actually the the truth of that that triune unity of the three persons, hidden from all ages in the sense eternal, but uh, then then communicated to us now. Right, we have the secret of the Trinity, so to speak, as our knowledge. It's secret from the world. At, like the world could never have spoken this message, yet God gives sort of to all if if people if it's accepted. Um, this this message of you know the 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 eternity of the Godhead, right? So it's 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 like the Trinity being ex- it is the Trinity expressed right. in time. The uncreated life of God is now expressed to creatures. So it's secret in essence. Hidden could only be expressed by God. Um, because it is the the hidden depths and mystery and the bosom of the Father uh, expressed uh, in in Christ and then through through the Church. Great. Thank Hence, you. so that's the reason why whenever early apologists needed to kind of fight the Gnostics, what they would do is say, "Hey, we are the real Gnosticism," um, but it's not what you think, right? It's not the secret club. So they would do that because you know you got as an apologist, you have to have a little bit of that that punch, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I know you are, but what am I kind of attitude? But anyway, <laughs> that's great. Doctor, as we look at um, people diving into philosophy and to learning how to really dive into it, do we have to worry about there being a danger of leaning too far into philosophy when doing theology about putting the things of God into human categories and terms? Oh, yeah, there's a there's a very there's a very real risk of this. Um, I, I once upon a time was probably less sensitive to it, um, you know, just because, I mean, just the influences were affected on me, but it, it is a very, um, it's like st- st- staring at the fingers that of looking at what the fingers pointing at. I mean, you can get really tied up in, in the, uh, the knowledge, like you get really tied up in just kind of being able to do theology and to do philosophy and, and sort of the neatness of it all fit together systematically um, that you totally miss the fact that all this is, is a tool for expressing the, the, the mystery that is revealed. And so, I mean, there, there should be a kind of asceticism that reminds you of the limitations. Um, you know, the limitations of both actually our theologizing, we need to actually enter into the theology, which is God's self-communication, right? Theology itself as a kind of practice, talking about the mysteries should always actually enter into God's self-speech to us in the liturgy, in prayer, etc. And especially philosophy. Philosophy has a real risk this way, I, I do think. And I, I think that over the ages of Christianity, great, great authors have always pointed this out, this, this risk. Um, philosophy can really tempt people into setting philosophy up as the end all be all. Um, this just historically has happened. So I think it's something to always be on the, the lookout for. St. Gregory of Palamas has this thing at the beginning of the triads where he compares it to like looking for the, the part of the snake that's not venomous. Um, there is a part, he's like, there's a part, but you got to really be careful cutting up the parts that, 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 uh, throw out the parts that are bad. But, you know, I think once upon a time I would have scoffed at that a little bit more. I think it's very wise. So. Um, doctor in, in, um, and maybe I don't know if, if anybody up here on screen has a question, you're welcome to raise your hand and jump in. Um, but, um, a question coming in about how, um, St. John would have understand, understood, I'm going to kind of try to make sense out of the question, understood, uh, this term logos that he used and was it something he would have understood as he encountered Christ I mean, we we encounter that term at the begin right at the beginning of his gospel, um, or is it something that that he started to understand or gain uh, the language of as he went out into the Greek world and then made use of it in his writing of his gospel? In, in other words, would not the being Jews, an exegete, I'm just trying to be careful. Yeah, I mean, not being an exegete, I'm going to be careful. Um, but that being said, you know, I, I think that immediately it would have been that. It would have been an awareness where they, they, the term may not have been used, to be honest, you know, by the young, young man who was John, right? He encountered it and then has this tool at hand when he's much older um, that is expressing, you know, this this fact that he's like aware of. I mean, he has to have a really – think about what was in his mind, a very odd combination. He's using this word logos, which is super 
like spiritual sounding, right? It's kind of hidden in the mind. And yet he's like right next to it talking about how I touched the logos, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it was, it was, it's an example of something that was used in the process of God's, uh, you know, revealing activity and, and inspiration of scripture mm. to, to use this thing that John probably picks up with, with aging, you know, and so that particular Greek notion was not, you know, fully formulated, right? But there was this, this, um, and this doesn't mean anything bad, this vague notion, right? That was then given very distinct lo- language there cause, because mm. he expressed what he had touched, what he had seen, what he had heard was, him who is in in the you know with the father toward the father uh from all eternity and so then that becomes this this instrument that was able to be used by god in his inspiring of scripture yeah thank you god bless you dr minor for for a wonderful presentation this evening um blessing to have you with us we look forward to having you back yeah what a great evening we had together thank you so much dr minard for taking your time and being with us this evening father would you please close us in prayer tonight May the blessing of the Lord and his mercy be upon you through his grace and love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.